This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to After the Buzzer. This is our 10th episode, and we have tried to bring you these podcasts with interesting and provocative content, and that hopefully will make you think or teach you something you may not have known about. In today's episode, I think that is what we will do. At least I have learned something. Today's topic is esports, and I think this emerging industry is one I really don't understand, but might truly be the next big thing. My two guests understand this phenomenon. They work and play in this space. Let me introduce first Tad Blanke, an intellectual property lawyer at my firm, Thompson Coburn, who specializes in patent protection, trademark, and copyright issues. Thad is a graduate of Vanderbilt University and Valparaiso University School of Law. At Vanderbilt, he studied electrical engineering and was part of a group of students that designed a missile guide system of U.S. Army Aviation and Missile Command. As an electrical engineer, Thad built his own gaming computers and is an avid gamer. Thad combines his passion with his law practice. He is from Chicago and is a lifelong White Sox fan, a fact that I won't hold against him. Our next guest, other guest, is Robert Bobby Hacker. Bobby is a well-established sports media and business lawyer who for 18 years was vice president of business and legal at Fox Sports. In that role, he negotiated drafted and reviewed agreements for sports business and media rights. In 2017, Bobby started his own firm focusing on traditional sports media, where he represents above-the-line production talent and sells on-program development. Additionally, Bobby has begun focusing on esports, representing both the event and production energies, as well as teams. Bobby is a graduate of the University of California, in other words, a bear, and San Fernando Valley College of Law. He's a longtime member of Sports Lawyers Association and just began his two-year term as president. He's a rugby player and Dodger fan. Also, two facts I won't hold against him. It is my pleasure to re- re- welcome Thad Blanke and Bobby Hacker to After the Buzzer. Welcome, guys. I'm really excited to talk about eSports, and a uh, pleasure to meet you, Bobby, as well. Yeah, likewise. I won't hold it against you. The White Sox fan, because... I felt like I should walk it and put my Cubs hat on now, but we'll keep that for another time. <laughs> okay, let me let me begin. Enough baseball. Fat, uh, in your bio, you say you're a PC gamer and have a Nivea GeForce GTX 1080 card. That, that is correct. That is part of my bill. As I said at the intro, that and much of this industry is a total foreign language. So give me a short primer on the gaming industry. Yeah, uh, so the gaming industry is, well, we're talking about esports today. I mean, obviously, the gaming industry has been around for a while. Now, a lot of us gamers, we kind of separate ourselves either as PC gamers or console gamers. And for most, for the most part, I'm considered a PC gamer. So I build my own rigs. Uh, what I gave you is my NVIDIA card. Uh, that's not the top of the line card, but it's decent for the games I play and definitely for you know VR technology moving forward. Now, from the eSports thing, I love being a PC gamer. Now, but that doesn't mean the eSports doesn't move into console because there's tons of console games that are involved with the eSports. But PC is kind of where I think a lot of this started and even started earlier, I would say in the 80s with the fighting games. Now, in the 80s, you had the arcades, and then you had the launch of you know, the big first console system, the Nintendo Super System. And from there, you know, small tournaments came about. And uh, you know, there were competitions here and there, you know, very small prize monies here, and so on and so forth. But recently, in the last 10 years, it's really exploded. It's gotten to the point now that we're talking a lot of money is going into this field, a lot of uh, you know sports teams like NBA uh, owners, uh, they're they're investing in these type of industries, and it's kind of gotten to the point that um, people are paying attention here because people don't really know what it is, and they're not really sure, you know, where it's going. 
So what is eSports to me? Uh, eSports, I would say, is a professional gaming atmosphere of a, of, a, of a released game. So I guess I would call that anything that is involves skill and competitive level in which prize money is awarded. And as Bobby can maybe add in here, uh, there's a lot of stuff out there that is kind of um, fits this bill. Yeah, well, I think it's a little, you know, as with most things, there's some nuance that needs to be discussed. And for the non-active participant or person that works in the space, you need to sort of first start and separate the two universes. One is the gaming universe, and one is the esports universe. As Thad said, you know, the gaming universe has been around for a long time. And that's the publisher-based options, whether it's a PC game or a console game that, you know, people play and they engage with. And as our broadband pipe has gotten bigger and as the ability to engage with other gamers has grown, you've had a, a growth of people playing against one another. Ultimately, that gaming industry, which is, I think, a $4.5 billion industry, started throwing off, you know, instead of just people sitting in the classic kid in his basement playing with some other kid in his basement, people started having tournaments where people would come out and they'd play for prize money. And what's happened now is these tournaments have started growing and growing uh, where you have not just local tournaments or national tournaments, but you have international tournaments. And then about, <clears throat> well, we're about to enter season three of the Overwatch League, Activision Blizzard, which has this game they created called Overwatch. And before it was really a game that had been embraced by a broad spectrum of the gaming world, they formed a franchise-based league, and they're about to enter into year three, which will now have 20 franchises based all over the world including Home and Away series. And that business, separate from the sort of general gaming business, is looking at being, by the end of 2020, a billion and a half dollar a year enterprise. So the esports part, separated from this, the general gaming, is basically competitive gaming. So you've taken a casual game, like, for example, when I was a kid, I played Monopoly. And I'd play Monopoly when people came over, much the same way a kid might play Call of Duty at home when he's playing the game. Now, if you're really good, you can, because that's a new league that Activision Blizzard is launching, you can attempt to get signed to a Call of Duty team and to get into the sport professionally in a competitive environment. So you, you, just, you, you just mentioned a bunch of things, again, all very foreign to me. So you guys can maybe clarify. Now, is Overwatch a game? And the thing that I know about computer games and all those things is Madden football. Is that different than Overwatch and League of Legends? And so tell me about what are the games. Well, let me just really quickly. Yes, there's two things. There are the first-person shooter games, and then there are the sports games. So while you have things like Overwatch and League of Legends and Call of Duty and CSGO, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On the other side, you have FIFA, you have Madden, you have NBA 2K. So you have both traditional sports made into video games. Bob, it's a little farther ahead than that board of electronic of electric football that we had when we were kids where you plugged it in and the machine buzzed about and little plastic figures bounced around. Um, I, I love that game. <laughs> <laughs> and so now what's happened is, is they've taken this, you know, the digital technology we have and created avatars for players in the sports world. And that's a whole separate place. You see a lot of NBA teams are getting, are, are developing NBA 2K franchises. You know, Madden's always been very popular among the football crowd. But now you have all of these other games that are not traditional sports-related games, but they're these first-person shooter games or other likes kinds of games that, you know, people can play and they can essentially have a engaged social relationship with other gamers who they play from all over the world. So yesterday, uh, Matt just showed me 
what are some of the games you showed me yesterday, Pat? Yeah, I was, you know, just following up, you know, as a gamer, we kind of separate a lot of these games into different categories, and Bobby went through a lot of them. You know, we have our FPSs, the first-person shooters. Those are your Call of Duties. Um, Overwatch would kind of fall in there as well. We have MOBAs, which are, you know, multiplayer online battle arenas. That's your Dota, and that's a League of Legends. Then, you know, we have the fighter games, which are like Smash Brothers, and then the sports games, and, you know, Bobby listed all of the normal, you know, the FIFAs, the Maddens, but another very popular one out there is Rocket League, and that's literally cars playing soccer. That's probably the best way to explain that. Wait, wait, wait. Did you say cars playing soccer? That's, yep. Cars, you have a little car that you drive around, you score goals against the other team, and there's local tournaments all the time on this, and there's actually a professional league. Now, now, Bob, I, I want, as we're helping you and, and I assume some of the audience understand, keep in mind that you have a lot more freedom in a digital universe to make things do things that might not be possible in the human world. Therefore, cars playing soccer is perfectly reasonable. <laughs> and it's a lot of fun, too, I will say that. And what Bob was alluding to earlier is um, I had invited Bob to log into Twitch and watch Twitch streams to actually see some of these games live. And for those who are unfamiliar, uh, Twitch is a streaming platform where gamers um, can, can log in and subscribers can watch them play. And this you know, is definitely a huge market in this esports arena because a lot of these professional players, when they're not competing in tournaments, will stream on there for additional revenue and for their viewers to interact with them. Are these people really athletes? That argument back with Bobby Fischer and then we're playing chess, were they really athletes even though it was competitive? Well, let me, let me, let me raise you the, the standard question that I ask people. And it's sort of a two-part series of questions. So when you're a kid, Bob, you grew up playing sports, right? Yes. Did you watch professional athletes playing football on TV, for example? Yes. Or college athletes? Did you watch the NFL or college while you were playing football? Yes. And you did it because you wanted to see how the best performed. Maybe you might learn something, right? I think so. Well, if I'm a somebody playing whatever, pick the game, Overwatch, for example, and I'm at home and I'm playing it, and I can go to Twitch and I can see somebody on Twitch, a team or an individual player, and I can see them playing the game, and by watching them and talking about it, I can learn certain in-game things that I can do. I can learn about, I won't go into the nomenclature, but different things that exist in the game and how to get them. So very much in, in that sense, I'm doing the same thing as you or I did as kids watching the professional sports to help us get better at what we were doing, what we were playing, in the hopes that maybe one day we might become a professional. If not, we might be better at playing the game. By the same token, in your question about is it a sport or isn't it a sport, if you have a team environment, as exists in both the franchise and non-franchise models of these games, and that team has a massage therapist, a sports psychologist, a dietitian, um, a team manager, etc. It sounds to me like it's very much like a traditional sports team and has all the same kind of support system that a football, baseball, or basketball team might have. So is it a sport? I say yes. Okay, so now you guys have both used Overwatch. And is Overwatch a team, a game, or a league? Bet. Well, Overwatch Me, is all of the above. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the correct answer. Overwatch is a game that was uh, launched by Activision Blizzard, I believe, in 2016. Maybe correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, yeah, Bobby. Yeah, that's right. Um, Overwatch is kind of unique in the gaming field in that uh, this was Blizzard's first entry into this first-person shooter base control. It is a team-based game, so you are on teams of, I believe, five versus five. And, you know, Blizzard had some um, experience uh, with some of the World of Warcraft arena leagues and arena, arena skirmishes to see how best to run 
uh, this type of business. And Overwatch, I believe, was was released with the intention of getting into the esports. Now, what you do here in Overwatch while you play, you're kind of a, I would say, point control. Your teams of five trying to com uh, control certain base objectives. Uh, maybe move a vehicle from point A to point B, and then you know there's a final score. Not as much based on uh, kill total kills, but uh, many different aspects of the game. Right, and what's unique about Overwatch, Bob, is that it was launched as a traditional single ownership model franchise-based league system, kind of like how they launched MLS, Major League Soccer, and so that they said, okay, we're doing this league. And what was a remarkable story about Overwatch is they said we're going to start this league. The game had barely been deployed for the consuming public and Activision Blizzard through its major league gaming division said, we're going to launch it with a whole city-based franchise league system. And it's run for two years. And now as we hit year three coming up, it will be a team, a city where a true city-based series where everybody has to have a home arena and there will be home and away competitions. And in some instances, the away competition, because there are teams in China, Korea, and Europe, so it's not strictly a U.S.-based or Canadian-based, North American-based league. It's a worldwide-based league. I'm not sure. I'm not, not less confused than I was when we started. So now tell me about is Overwatch and League of Legends and Activision Blizzard and EA Sports, which you haven't met, are they related? Are they the same? Are they, what are they? I'm just saying, Bob, there are two sort of, you have to separate the sort of the, the, the divisions in the world. You have publishers, and that's Activision Blizzard, EA, Riot Games, so on and so forth. There's lots of them. On the other side, you have organizations. So there may be an organization like Immortals, which is the name of an organization. And under Immortals banners, there's the LA Valiant, which is an Overwatch team. There's MIBR, which is a CSGO team. And they have five or six other teams competing in various other sports. They will have a, uh, uh, also a new Call of Duty franchise team. But within the gaming, the team element, you have a league-based model, and you also have a tournament-based model. So there are, the majority of the games, the competition is based upon tournaments. And the tournaments can be, you know, local, national, and international. Okay, so as I said earlier, I said I had a question about whether when you kept saying first shooter, what we have going on in the world, that makes me nervous when we're talking about shooting things. Uh, and so we have first shooters, we have young people playing this game. Are they professional athletes? Are they college students? Tell me what the landscape is of the people playing these games are, and what is the sort of the future of this game? I think you, definitely those who play these games are on the younger side. Uh, a lot of them are obviously younger males. Um, I, what I find very unique about esports is a lot of these players go professional at a very young age, uh, sometimes right out of high school, play for about four to five years, retire at 22, 23, become coaches, and then go to college. I mean, it's, it's a very different type of, uh, uh, I guess it's not so different than, you know, like the, some other sports like the NFL with the short careers. But um, it is the, they are very young compared to a lot of other, other athletes. Now, who's playing these? I mean, this is an international thing. Uh, the U.S. is big, uh, as in there's a lot of money being put into it here. But the following in Korea and, and China is just uh, in, insane. I mean, in Korea, if you don't have a ping of 10, like you're at a disadvantage. And a ping is a latency between your gaming system and, and the home server that you're playing. And, and that's a big thing. There, there are you know, cafes dedicated to this type of stuff. And a ping of 10, what does 10 mean? 10, is 10 uh, milliseconds. I don't want to get into lag and explain some of the nuances, but it's, a, it's an excuse we use as gamers on why we died. Let's put it that way. So, Bobby... Who are you representing? Like, I mean, I don't need the names, but what's the demographic of the 
athlete that you would Well, use. okay, so I my work has been with uh, event organizers and teams. So I am not a esports player agent or player representative. There are those that, that have sort of taken on that business. But as with anything, when you're negotiating with an athlete, as you certainly know about, you go to them and you say, we want you on our team. It's a very open market. And I'll, I'll explain some changes with the teams. But, you know, if I'm putting together a team and I've seen some kid come up through tournaments, let's say, and I say, oh, I really want this guy on my team. You know, I reach out to him and I say, hey, we'd like you on your team. And he says, you got to talk to my mom. More and more frequently, it's like, oh, I have a lawyer. Can you talk to him? Or it's, yeah, what's up? Now, three years ago, I would say, if you made that call, we're forming a team, do you want to play? You know, you'll get 80% of your one-fifth of 80% of the prize money and we'll support everything else. Yeah, I'm in. What happened was when a lot of the, sh the shift, I think, really came with Overwatch and creating a formal league, and they have standard player contracts, much like exist in any of the sports you know, that the general public is familiar with, NFL, Major League Baseball, NHL, NBA, et cetera, et cetera. So like the traditional sports, they said, okay, let's have a standard, a minimum guarantee with all these other benefits in it. So there is no players association. There is no bargaining unit. But to my mind's eye, Activision Blizzard developed a union avoidance strategy that provided benefits for the players that it would have. And like any other marketplace, as you have, may have a minimum contract, as in most of the leagues, if you know so many years of service, you've got to get paid at least this. What's happening in Overwatch is as we now get into year three, when you're trying to sign players, you know, you've found players who may be better than somebody else and have qualified and they may have, you know, certain income that they have to give up because of the amount of time they have to spend on the team. So you're going to start having paying more. So if the minimum salary is X and you want some guy, you might have to pay 2X to get this person on your team. But that's where you have a control like, exist in these in the formal leagues that are being built out if i'm building a tournament team in a non-league universe and i want to put together the best guys you know i'm going to have to pull people and figure out all kinds of of deals not just what i'm paying them but do they have do they have sponsorship deals so does that prohibit me from doing a sponsorship deal that might interfere with the player sponsorship deal so it gets there's a, a lot of nuance and just just to give you a little shading on what Thad said. In South Korea, they have, I don't know if it's still six, but up until a couple of years ago, they had six 24-hour linear channels dedicated to esports. So, so I started to ask you before you finished that answer about, like we had our last sports lawyers uh, meeting, uh, the guy from Riot was there and he talked, weren't they trying to start a union? Do you remember that conversation? Yeah, well, Chris Greeley, who's the North American commissioner for Riot, what's happened is is that they don't have a formal bargaining unit, but another lawyer, another longtime SLA member, Hal Biagas, is put together or has been asked to create a sort of players association, but not a formal bargaining unit yet. yet. But to my mind's eye, once you form a players association, it bodes well for somebody deciding that they're going to create a bargaining unit. So now these these athletes and they're getting paid and but now I read that the NCAA is and some college teams are giving scholarships and all. How is that going to work? Are they amateurs? Can they do both? I know um, at least from the League of Legends, which is the Riot. Uh, League of Legends supports a um, collegiate league itself, where they are. Um, allowing uh, universities to create teams that play competitively. And a lot of the scholarships uh, have been very successful for the universities that are recruiting players this way. From my understanding, um, the NCAA is not getting involved to regulate this as a sport per se, and it's regulated to the club level. I think they might go back in a couple of years and revisit this as more and more revenue flows in. 
because it is very successful uh, not only to get students to attend these universities, but some of these universities uh, for those players that are skilled and want to go into esports, it is a, a a ground where they can hone their skills before going professional. Yeah, further to that, League of Legends, their publishers, Riot Games, they have collegiate tournaments, and there are several Power Five conferences that are signing on to participate in these League of Legends collegiate tournaments comprising a fall season and a spring season. And the players aren't winning money, but what's happening is the money is then contributed to scholarship funds. And also, as what Thad said, it's, it's basically like I'm playing college football and I hope that I can make it to the NFL. You know, I'm playing collegiate League of Legends I'm hoping I can get picked up for a League of Legends team. So, as we all know, money drives the boat. Uh, and so there seems to be some money to be made, to be had for both the player and others involved. As you say, the NCAA is looking at it because obviously they think there's some money. And so many of the professional sports leagues and teams have invested in this. What do you see is behind their, their interest in this? There's sort of two parts of it, and I'm going to talk about the money in terms of sponsorship and marketing for these teams, and maybe, Thad, you could talk about in-game income streams for the casual player, which is a whole other side of this business. But on the, um, you know, on the team side, I can, I can tell you that initially most of the sponsorship was endemic sponsorships, keyboards, mouses, power sources. Those sort of the, the equipment that goes around, you know, what you need to play a game. What's, what's been changing is the introduction of the non-endemic sponsors. So, for example, when I started working in the space a couple of years ago, I was surprised that I was doing a deal for a shoe company to be the official shoe of a team. I wasn't surprised when I did, did a deal for a soft drink company with a very high caffeine content that it wanted to be a sponsor of the team and the sponsorship is in addition, you know, the standard will be the official sponsor and be given that designation and we will pay you X dollars for this amount, but you have to do this many social po social media posts. You have to have this banner on your site and some other details like that. And you started seeing more of the non-endemic sponsors trying to get into the game. The, the business, I mean, of the game. I can tell you anecdotally that two years ago, I did one of these soft drink deals, which had a maybe a nine-month term, and it was a low six-figure deal, but it had, you know, all kinds of different social media obligations and website presence and continuing obligations over the whole term. That contract is one-year deal. That deal expired. The soft drink company wanted to renew. And this time they upped the ante a little bit on what they were willing to pay, but they were really focused on one two-day event. Now there was still site presence and some obligation over the course of a similar term, but the real focus was on one weekend. So they were willing to spend as much on one weekend in year two of a relationship as they were willing to spend over a nine-month period. So... I think that the non-endemic sponsors are seeing that the big showcase events are worth investing in, in very much the same way as a company that's going to spend four or $500,000 for a 30-second commercial in a regular season NFL game will now be paying $5.5 for that same commercial in a Super Bowl. Now, how about in-game opportunities? In-game opportunities for the players themselves. This is uh, rather unique, and it is something that I had you experience firsthand when we logged on to Twitch TV. So besides the obligations that you know these players have to their teams, where they'll you know either live in gaming houses, they'll practice together, they'll play in the tournaments, a lot of them have found um, outside opportunities to make money on their own, and sometimes they have obligations to stream their play at certain times during the day. 
So working with websites like Twitch, and if you're not familiar with Twitch, it is a live streaming platform that is owned by Amazon and is probably it is it is it is the biggest streaming platform online, second it would be YouTube. Uh, it's valued at about three point eight billion dollars these days and is the thirteenth most popular site in the US. Everyone that logs in there has the opportunity to stream but the most popular streamers are those who are the professional players. Let me just hit that for one, for one second. I mean, you said YouTube. Do they do streaming of these kind of games too? Yes, YouTube will stream. I mean, a lot of these uh, the game developers have uh, professional channels, YouTube channels, that you can watch the content on. Um, usually it's available on both platforms. Uh, Twitch, for whatever reason, has just become the more popular platform uh, for the, and so making money off Twitch, uh, that's a, a, a little bit of a different situation because you, when you log in, you have the option to subscribe to these channels and these professional players. And some of them do cost money to subscribe. The players will get some of that benefit. Now also when you log in, you're going to see some ads. Just like if you started like a, a Hulu session or something online streaming, and those, uh, those companies that are advertising on Twitch once a streamer gets a certain amount of views, he's getting some type of royalty for those ads that are being shown. And the most popular streamers on Twitch, they can make over 100K a month. I mean, this is not pocket change. I believe the most popular streamer is probably still Ninja, who plays Fortnite. It is. And he, it is, yeah. So it's Ninja. And he was so popular that he was on the most recent season of The Masked Singer on Fox. And most people had no idea who that was, but I was just—I had the TV on. It's like, oh, that's Ninja. And esports is now invading almost all different parts of culture. That if you don't know about it, you're going to experience it soon. Yeah, and this this guy uh, Tyler Blevins, Ninja, is the first truly crossover star, but he's the first. He's not the—he's he may be the only one now. I mean, with within each of the of the games. The gamers know the stars. If you're a League of Legends player, you're going to know a bunch of the top League of Legends players. You know who they when are. You, say cross-over, and you mean not only is he a player that? on the games, but he's also on television. Mass. I mean, the people know who he oh, is. Oh, he has. He has his own Red Bull can. He signed a, He he signed a deal with Red Bull, and they created a, a can with him with Ninja on the can. He has. I mean, he was making at one point, just from his YouTube channel, three years, two, three years ago, he was making 50 grand a month, and it's only gone up since then. So he makes several million dollars a year now because he's not only has a deal with Red Bull, there's, he's got lots of other sponsors, and he has millions of followers. So he's, he is both a professional gamer and a social media influencer which is to say because he has so many subscribers and so many followers, an advertiser knows that they can reach a very targeted audience. And it's very similar to the NASCAR phenomenon, which is if you're a NASCAR fan and your driver drives the Bud Light car, you will only drink Bud Light. You're not drinking Budweiser. You're not drinking Michelob. You're not drinking Ultra. You're drinking Bud Light. Tyler Blevins, Ninja drinks Red Bull, you're going to drink Red Bull and no other energy beverage. And that loyalty allows the companies like Red Bull to pay him a lot of money because they know that his followers are going to support and support him and buy those products. And the reason advertisers love this so much, I mean, we're talking a demographic here that is usually the 25 to, I'd say, the 28-year-old male. And they're a very finicky demographic to nail down what they like. And if, if you're advertising on Ninja's channel, you're getting much more exposure to a, a large part of the population that they want to ensnare and, and sell their product to. Right. You, as you said, that is the demographic that everybody is searching for. It's the 18 to 34, and you put them right in the middle. Although I've often argued that I'm the much better demographic for people because I spend money and I'm very loyal. Where young people are not as loyal as old folks who are setting our ways. You do have the money, 
But don't underestimate the power of the parent's credit card for a lot of these kids because they, they will charge a lot of things on them. So you talked about, and how old was, what was it, Tyler Flevins is his name? How old is he? I'd say early 20s. I'm not sure off the top of my head. Yeah, I think he's in his mid-20s. So when do kids, young men, young women start playing these games? At what age? When can they start, you know, making money? And what legal issues do we have with a 17-year-old before he's the age of majority, you know, being a professional athlete, if they're athletes? Well, let's see. Tyler Blevins just turned 28 years old. He's a millionaire several times over. And he has... You know, he is, is the model that people are trying to figure out how to latch onto and how to become part of the industry. But he's the Michael Jordan of this. He's, well, of of one of the game Fortnite, yes, he 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 has, and this is not to say that he can't be beaten, but he's managed to engage a lot of. You found what's really interesting about him is there are a lot of professional athletes that have played Fortnite. Fortnite is a very popular game. And again, nobody has a crystal ball to say how long a game will remain popular, but this one's very popular. And he's done sessions where he played against the musician Drake. He's played sessions against famous athletes across various professional sports. So it's, he's kind of a unique character, but as more and more people admit to being involved in playing games, they're excited about, you know, a professional athlete. If I'm a professional football player, you know, I might, you know, it's not surprising guys least to, oh, I want to go see Michael Jordan play. I want to see Magic play. You know, I want to see Kobe play. You know, you were interested in seeing other great athletes in other sports. These guys are been grew up as gamers, a lot, especially the younger NFL guys who were in that same 18 to 24 wheelhouse of the actual gamers themselves. And so they're reaching out. And so now advertisers are seeing, wait a second, I've got this NFL superstar that wants to take part with this guy and play a game against him. So it opens up a whole world of opportunities. And I think uh, the marketers and the sponsorship people are just trying to figure out how to, how to cage this beast because it's like a wildfire right now. So as I said earlier in the beginning, this could be the next big thing. It may already be the next big thing. But also the next big thing sometimes flames out. What what is this? Is there a strategy or, or or something to keep this game growing? So what's the next iteration of esports? Well, I think esports, the whole genre of this part, this subsection of gaming, is here to stay. What's going to be the popular game? Uh, kind of what Bobby alluded to. That's that's the challenge of the the publishers. They've got to make sure that their games are still captivating the interest of, of, the, of the audiences that they, they want to get the money from. Now, the Overwatch model, like, like Bobby said, was kind of unique. Like It was a one-time purchase license, and you can play unlimited. A lot of these games are popular because they're free. And, and they're free, and they're not pay-to-win. Uh, there was a... a thing in the early 2000s where you could have free access to a game, but you would have to pay money for additional content that would only make it competitive. A lot of these very popular esports games are just free, and you have the whole access to the most to the necessary essentials uh, to be successful at the game. And any money you give to the company is for uh, aesthetics. Uh, we call them skins in game, usually different ways that your character looks like. Now, your question, like a, a young person getting in here and the legal issues, uh, like Bobby said, three years ago, these young 17-year-olds, they would jump at the, the chance they would sign these contracts. Now, in the years that esports has developed, you know, we're seeing more and more legal lawsuits about this because, you know, certain organizations were not paying their players. They were breaking their contracts, and, and people were realizing not getting lawyers involved to read these things over and have some type of protection leads to the bad issues. And with the youngness of the crowd, obviously, you've got to get the parents involved. Uh, a lot of these players in a lot of um, leagues are foreign-born, so they have to come over on visas. And if the proper visas are not done in time, then you know there, there have been instances in the past that players have had to be are being deported and don't get to play in the tournaments. 
So there's a lot of stuff that goes into four, four years ago people didn't think about it, but now that you know these happen every day, this is where the the organizations are becoming stronger. The leagues are kind of being stronger to structure themselves to make sure that esports moves forward. I think the best way to describe it really is, and not to use an already overused expression, but the industry itself, the esports industry, has begun to experience a paradigm shift. And that shift is a lot of these teams began as gamer owners. For example, Bobby Hacker, this great gamer, and he wants to put together a team because I can put a great team together and we'll go to a tournament and I'll run this team and I'll play too or maybe I'll just manage the team now. What's happened is as this industry has matured, now you're getting in investment bankers and real investment capital and real series funding in the industry. So we're shifting from the gamer owner to the investment-backed securities enterprise. And as we're maturing and this new shift is happening, it's saying we're a real business, this is real money, we need lawyers looking at everything. Because in the early days, what uh, one of the things I think Thad was, was alluding to is I'm a young kid. I got hired to a team. Wow, this is really great. They're going to take me to these tournaments and pay for my expenses. And, you know, I'll get paid something. And nobody's looking at, you know, is this, is this within, you know, wage and hour laws, the amount they're paying? You know, what, what is covered? More importantly, there's provisions about, you know, sharing uh, tournament winnings. But if you're not represented by counsel and you have no audit provision inside the agreement, how do you check? How can you check? Do you even have the money, very unlikely, to hire the lawyers to check? Those kinds of things is where it's all changing because it's gone from sort of this, hey, I like the game. Do you like the game? Join my team model to, you know, billionaires putting their money into the sport and wanting to make sure that it's treated like all their other businesses. So now there's again there's Overwatch there's Riot and, and and these are these are leagues. So if if I play for an Overwatch team, can I play in a Riot league or am I stuck in am I in one league? Well, the players themselves usually specialize in one game. Now, some of the organizations that Bobby was talking about, like Immortals, uh, Cloud Nine, I believe is another one, probably Team Solo Mid, TSM. These big organizations, they have teams in multiple different leagues that play on multiple different gaming platforms. And these are the, the bigger players that are kind of establishing themselves as the, the leading organizations in the esports world. Now, there are also you know certain ones in Europe, I think. G2, I mean, I think even Paris Saint-Germain, the soccer organization, has, a, has an esports division yeah, over there. Yes, has one now. Yep. And then, you know... SKT or SK Telecom One in, in Korea is huge. Um, Invictus, I'm just kind of naming them off the of my head. But what they're doing is these organizations, they started just you know one team in one league, but they found that the overarching structure of their organization, having multiple teams play out in multiple leagues, is a better business model um, and more security and more revenue, obviously. You can get bigger sponsors if you have more exposure. Yeah, and you look at an organization like Cronky Sports and Entertainment, which owns a lot of professional, traditional teams. They're going in in a big way on esports. They have an Overwatch franchise. They own the LA Gladiators in Overwatch, for example. They have other teams in other sports. And as part of the new Rams facility they're building out here, there's a dedicated site because every team has to have a home site. So the for Overwatch, so there's a esports arena being built as part of the complex there. So all of St. Louis just hung up on you because you started talking about Cronky Sports. <laughs> so the leagues, are they, are they structured by one group owning them and then you can track with that league to play in those events? Is that the way kind of it is? I think it, it depends on the, the, the publisher itself. I mean, I think... Um, you know, you know, Bobby knows more about the Activision Blizzard Overwatch model, so I'll let him reach that. But I know at least for Riot's model, Riot, uh, they run the 
the LCS or what the League Championship Series, and they from there they have a North America division, a European division, a Korean division, and a and an Asia Chinese division. Um, and from there they kind of run those leagues. The teams uh, that is run more, I would say, kind of like a soccer league where there's relegations. You know, you have to be in the top eight teams if you're in the bottom four or five or six, you're going to play to keep your spot in the league the next series time around. And there's a sub-league below that. And then they, they play their way up. And teams are all over the all over the map there. And um, there's some good prize money. Like right now, League of Legends, the Worlds are going on. So there's a lot of viewers tuning in because the, uh, the knockout stage is going on right now. And unfortunately, no North American teams made it. But that wasn't too surprising for us who follow that. Um, but it's um, it's a big deal. I mean, you're going to have probably 45 million viewers when the when the championship world starts. So if I win that that, that League of Legends, how much money could I could I win? I think League. I think last year. Let me see. Last year, League of Legends gave out. Uh, there was a six million dollar prize pool. I think for Worlds. Now that's that's a small that's a small I mean I think Dota and even and Fortnite have the biggest I think Dota you won like yeah. go ahead Bobby well I was just gonna say they just had a Fortnite tournament and the championship was won by a 16 year old kid who at 16 took home a prize of two or three million dollars for first place pretty good when I was 16 I was making like a dollar ten an hour. <laughs> Yeah, and you were walking 15 miles to school in the snow, right? Okay, but you're from California. So. There wasn't much snow in the San Fernando Valley, but yeah, right, something like yeah, that. Right, right, right. So let me. So the the buckets that I see is one these tournaments, and I understand that the tournaments can really sell out. You know, you can sell out the arena here in St. Louis in 10 minutes with 20,000 people for one of these things. Streaming with uh, Twitch, and I guess there's some rights fees there, and what about television, Bobby? Is, 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 will, will there become right fees in this in the next? In the United States, the first linear play is a deal that uh, sort of a JV between Endeavor, which used to be called William Morris Endeavor. Endeavor and Turner have a series that they started running on, I think, Friday night. ESPN recently showed finals of the Overwatch tournament finals, and ESPN has showed some other Overwatch plays. Now, my feeling is that the gamers have grown up in a native digital environment. That is to say, they have played these games online, they've related to other people online. The concept of, for them to have to go to a linear channel to watch it is fairly irrelevant. And while the linear play, I think, is directed at bringing in some more casual viewers. The hardcore fans really don't see any relevance in having a linear play. And I don't think there's really a lot of money available in a linear play because the audience is going to see it on their phones, on their tablets, on their PCs if they're watching a Twitch stream or whatever. And I don't think there's, I don't really see the place for or the need for a linear play. And it's, it's been fairly small activity in the space to date. Could it grow, perhaps? It's kind of the reverse of television and, and the traditional sports, which are now, they're more going from the linear to the, to the streaming because they think there's more money or additional money in the streaming, where the esports are already in the streaming and there's really no need to search after the, the millennial group that's already watching it online. Right, I think I because if you're looking at an, if you're looking at an audience that's 18 to 24, there's a good shot that those folks are cord nevers, not cord cutters. They've just never had it because they've always been able to get content because they've grown up in a universe where the broadband pipeline was big enough that you can get high quality speed. If you go back, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago where I was at Fox Sports working on negotiating deals with football and baseball and NASCAR and stuff, the discussions about any of this digital distribution or internet plays on it were very academic because the best systems couldn't handle more than a couple million streams. And even then, 
the integrity of the stream was always in question. Now we're living in a world with a broadband pipeline that's big enough that you can, by and large, get as good a quality and as consistent a quality image as you could in over your cable survey. I, I think the I, I don't think the linear channels are going to stand away from trying to expand on esports. I think it's still going to be out there. I agree with Bobby that it's it's kind of difficult with this generation and and the key demographic because they are so used to watching it online. Now, what the linear channels can offer though are for like like you said the casual fan that really doesn't know what my son's doing in the basement all day or what he's watching. So to explain and to explain and to kind of relate to those players to know what they're into and what's going on there. Now what the online feature, you know, offers that you can't get from a linear standpoint is and I, Bobby didn't bring this up, but you know, there's a chat function in a lot of these streaming services. And people do like to chat, whether it's their memes going back and forth or whatever else, and they enjoy that aspect. You know, if something terrible happens, they love to rib on the, the player, just like anything else. You know, you're not going to get that, you know, in front of your television set, but online you can do that. And then just the general setup of, you know, a lot of gamers. A lot of gamers have multiple screens, so they might have this on, a few streams on, different screens, or they'll have one on, they'll be playing a different game, and look back and forth. It's just kind of the culture that grew up this way, so that big shift might not happen, but you can definitely get the casual viewer and to understand more about the importance of it by going. And I was just going to say, what's fascinating for me is I'm not a gamer, but I remember the first time when I was getting involved in this is before I even, I was, I was still at Fox, and I'd heard about somebody was at a conference, somebody was talking about Twitch, Twitch. And I went on, I got the app, and I went in, and I clicked on some guy's feed, and I didn't know the game, obviously. I didn't really understand what was going on. But the next thing I knew, it was like 45 minutes later. By the same token, I went to Rivalry Weekend here in Los Angeles in August, see a bunch of Overwatch teams play. And I don't know the game, but seeing the fan engagement was mind-blowing. The excitement, the cheering, the everybody wearing team gear. And you just watch these, you're, you're in, a, in a venue, and you see the guys, because it's largely male-dominated, the 10 guys, five on each team, sitting on the stage, and they're sitting behind these big keyboards, but around, up above them, are giant you know, screens that show the game action where you're just seeing you know, different maps, different environments, and different explosions and protections and kill, all kinds of stuff going on, and somehow you just get drawn into it, even not knowing what really what's happening. It's visually hypnotic. So you said people were in the in the stands. Is there a merchandise happen uh, to this? Oh yeah. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. So what? Uh, like what? I mean, every. I would say that of the several thousand people at the facility, more than eighty percent, probably ninety percent we're wearing some kind of merch, whether it was team jerseys or, you know, any other kind of clothing item, caps, whatnot. I would say north of, well north of 80% of the attendees had something on. I would say as an IP attorney, I'm saying, yes, a lot of merchandising and a lot of opportunity here. And uh, these teams, everyone's got a sweatshirt. They've got their insignias, their logos. I mean, when these big tournaments go on, you have the opportunity in game to even pay money to have in game purchases that support your team and show your allegiance to certain teams. It is it is becoming no different than your standard NFL, NBA loyalty to issues. And you follow your players, you follow the free agency, you follow the ownership changes and and all of this it's a lot of that traditional sport model is, is flowing over there. We're just seeing now the involvement more of the business and the legal world trying to catch up to get it to an area that's sustainable and to grow. Much like at the end of uh, at the end of a Super Bowl or at the end of the World Series, the first commercial after the last out is always 
Go to NFLshop.com and get your championship jerseys for the fill in the blank of the team. The difference is, is in this native digital environment, you can create the opportunity for people to buy things supporting your team throughout the entire stream, throughout the entire quote-unquote broadcast. So the potential opportunity for selling merchandise is far more expansive and far more in your face than through traditional linear means of distributing content. Listen to you guys. I think this is a, a business opportunity. I want to buy a esports team now. How much would it cost me to do that? <laughs> well, do you want a good team? There, there, <laughs> well, here, here, let me put you this way, Bob. There, when Overwatch launched two years ago, it was only um, they launched the, a 12 team league, okay? And the reported franchise fee was $20 million. <laughs> They had people waiting in line that were pissed off that they couldn't get in the first 12 teams. Now they've expanded to 20 teams, and the reports on what the franchise fee is, you know, north of $30 million. But like any professional team, you know, you pay your franchise fee, then you have to hire talent, salespeople, marketing people, your HR department, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You have to build out an entire organizational infrastructure which costs a lot of money. So that's why I'm saying we have moved from the player owner, owner founder model to the traditional investment backed business model. So the investor, the, the NFL team that's going there, so the investment bankers, they view this as a money maker, not as a branding exercise. Correct. And also, it provides an opportunity to utilize your facilities. So if I'm owning an NFL team and I know that uh, maybe I get a preseason game or two and I'll get eight home games, and if I'm lucky enough in the playoff, I could get one or two playoff games at home, what do I do with my facility the rest of the year? Now, I don't need a 50,000, 60,000-seat arena but if in my building or adjacent to my building on my property, I have a several thousand seat esports arena, now I can bring additional people in to sell more food and beverage and sell more tickets and utilize my facility better. It's, uh, it's another business inside the umbrella business of the, the arena itself. So, so far you guys have described a pretty good success story. But my question is, what controversies have been risen out of the esports, and I know that there was a, a player who did something controversial, and they suspended him, and then they tell me a little bit about that. You, you were telling me about that yesterday. Yeah, so I mean, it, it is like um, you know, esports is like no other sport. You know, they they have their controversies, they have their player issues. Uh, usually it's it's not a big deal, but in its contract or or someone is fixing games, that kind of stuff. Uh, recently, there was a um, a, a Hearthstone tournament, um, and a a player by the name of Blitzchung. He Hearthstone is like a I don't know how to explain it. It's kind of like a a, a card game online, and you have a hit point system, and you try to defeat the opponent depending on the card you draw. Well, he uh, he had won he had won some prize money in a tournament, and during the post game interview, he had gave a um, a a interview talking about the the protests going on in Hong Kong. Now, Blizzard Activision at the time was um, against that, and and actually banned him for a year and took away his prize money. That caused a huge outrage online. I mean. Uh, Twitch was going crazy. All the Reddit threads were just jumping up the board. Uh, Blizzard wasn't responding, and they went quiet. You know, at the same time, you know, th this was kind of a throwing the ban hammer down really quickly uh, on this player. And you know, other sports like League of Legends, Riot had a tournament going on where one of the teams was um, from Hong Kong, and those cactus casters didn't know what to do if they could use the words Hong Kong or if the same thing was going to happen to them. So the esports was for about two or three days didn't really know how to deal with the situation. Uh, later, Blizzard did back off. He got his prize money back. His ban was, you know, six months based on some provision of the 
you know, the league rules. But, you know, what, what was interesting here was just the, um, the huge outrage. And I think it even got to the point that Congress drafted a letter to Activision because this whole, this whole uh, Hong Kong situation has really uh, brought up a lot of tensions between, uh, you know, private U.S. businesses and, and the Chinese government. Well, so it seems to me that a league that has controversy, Congress getting involved, is becoming a mature league. So, Bobby, I'll, I'll ask you first, and then that I'll ask you, what do you see, where will this sport be in five years or ten years? Well, I think we're on a, the calculus is on, on an upward trajectory with a lot of room to grow. I think that the appetite in the industry is strong. And, you know, League of Legends has been around a long time. It's a fairly mature game, and it doesn't seem to be declining in terms of total streams, et cetera. Still a, a top destination for gamers to go, you know. But there will be other games, and other games may create new leagues. But, you know, it's much the same way. You know, here we traditionally had, in America, you had Major League Baseball, you had the NFL, you the NBA, you the NHL. Now I would say MLS is mainstream. You've got a couple of cross leagues that are booming. There's a professional rugby league that is entering its third year and growing. And on and on and on. And so long as there's a community, which I believe there is in esports, and there may be some loyalty to a particular game, but if you're a gamer, much like I'm a sports fan, I mean, I love watching baseball, and I love watching football, and I love watch, I like watching all of these sports, and I'm a fan of all of them. I think by the same token in the gaming universe, you know, you'll have people continue to be involved with League of Legends, and even though they're League of Legends players, they're aware of what's going on Overwatch, and they'll watch Overwatch tournaments, and they're probably going to be interested in seeing what this new Call of, Tur- Call of Duty League is going to be like, and they watch other tournaments, so... Baseball may be my number one sport, but I still love watching these other teams. And I think the same will be true in esports. And whether it's Overwatch and League of Legends in 10 years, there will be other places for gamers to uh, plant their flag and watch and engage and embrace and spend money. Is there, is there going to be a central body that controls this? eventually? Is it going to be a commissioner of esports or something like that? No, that would be like, to my mind, that would be like saying, is there a commissioner of American professional sports? Do you think you could get Commissioner Silver, Goodell, and Manfred all to agree to one organization to govern all of them? Not going to happen. you agree with that, Pat? No, I agree. I just, uh, the, the, the visual of all three of those commissioners agreeing to something just made me chuckle. Let's put it that way. So tell me, what are you thinking five, ten years for this sport? Esports is not going away. I mean, it's it's shot up to prominence and it's showing some staying power. And the fact that it's evolving to legitimate big business, I think that means a lot. Now, I, I agree with Bobby. You know, the games right now, the challenge is on the developers. These are the big games right now. These are what people are putting the money in. They have to make sure the content doesn't get stale because their their demographic is a finicky bunch. You know, as gamers, we do want new things. But they they have a challenge in a lot of these that they have to make the learning curve. The learning curve has to be easy to pick up but difficult to master. And that's what a lot of these games are. They're easy to play originally, but very difficult to master. So when we see the mastery, we appreciate what's being done there. Where I see this going in a few years, I think this is going to be uh, one of the one of the areas of law that is going to be truly international. I mean, there's there is a there is so much. Uh, you know, the internet is international, and this whole arena is all international. Uh, there, these tournaments, these players are from all over. Uh, the the best are everywhere, and they're they're flipping leagues all the time. And I also think you're gonna, as common as it is for us to go to baseball games these days, I think in about 30 years, if you have an event for an esports league that's huge, just coming to your town or playing like the Overwatch model at the home stadium. That's something you do on your Sunday afternoon, just as if you would want to go to a football game. Last question, Bobby. Yeah. A lawyer, a lawyer in this space, what are you concerned about? <laughs> I'm concerned how I get a bigger piece of the business because it's a growth industry in the legal profession, 
And, you know, look, we're trained by lawyers to argue by analogy in many instances. And I see the esports business as analogous to other professional sports leagues. And the many of the issues that exist in sort of traditional sports leagues as it interfaces media, for example, exist in esports. But very much like what Bad said, because of the international nature of this, because of the fact that you're dealing in a digital universe, things are going to be different and there are going to be changes. I can tell you that I was doing a deal with a major beverage company and I said to their lawyers, I said, do you really think that we can put a fence around territory here? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, it's one thing to say that, you know, I'm going to, I have the rights to broadcast this over the air in the United States. And it was all standard agreements would say, but I'm not liable if there's any spillage that is somebody can pick up my signal in Canada or Mexico. Even with the, you know, the possibility of effective geo-blocking so that you, the stream can't exist outside of a certain limited area. The real problem becomes because of the nature of the digital distribution that it can essentially be seen anywhere, you know, subject to certain kind of governmental blocks and prohibitions. And because of that, you have to look at this sport very differently because you're transmitting across all kinds of international borders. And then you get into just the issues of tournament play, you know, bringing people from all different countries back and forth across. And now, you know, European lawyers I look, are, I look at are going like, man, what do we do with, you know, with Brexit? And how's that going to change players being able to travel if we're going to the UK or not? So there's, there's a lot of different issues that exist in it. And these are all the things that lawyers need to start building out so that the investors can protect their interests and that on the player side, the players can be protected and benefit from the growth of the industry. Ben, do you, what do you, do you see anything that Bobby didn't touch on there? No, I think he's got a lot of it down, and I'm, I'm with him. I think we need to get a bigger piece of the pie here. This is one of these areas that is growing uh, quickly, and it's something uh, the lawyers' involvement here is important because it will bring ease to the minds of the investors and ease to the minds of the players that they're not – no, not one side has an advantage in any type of these situations with the contracts. I think this is a, a fruitful area, and I, I think this is something that's going to be here for a while. Well, thank you guys. I mean, I think this i think this was an overload of information for me. Uh, I, I'm sure that people that listen to this webcast, I mean, this podcast, some will say, boy, I learned a lot. Some will say I'm more confused than I was, but I think everyone will come away saying, this is an industry that I've got to keep an eye on. So, Bobby Acker, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to do After the Buzzer. Uh, Thad, thank you for taking the time to do that, and I'm hoping that we can find a, a space for us in, in, in this industry for at Thompson and Coburn, and, and really continue to let you combine your passion in the law and in, in e-gaming. So, thank you, Bobby. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. If you just in closing, if you enjoyed listening to Bobby and Thad or any of our podcasts, please let us know. You can provide feedback by going to Apple Podcasts and go to the ratings and review section for our podcast. If you're listening on Stitcher, go to stitcher.com and search for After the Buzzer to leave a review or comment. Of course, is there a topic you would like to discuss or hear us discuss, let us know. We thank you for listening.